Hey there, welcome to The Colour Couch, which is brought to you through Lao Post and presented by me, Vincent Taylor. Now, if you don't know who Lao Post is, then hold everything, go check them out. Uh, they're an awesome creative learning platform that's for everything you need to know in this crazy post-production world. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm a wannabe talk show host who says um too much and has a day job as a colorist. Actually, sometimes that day job is a night job as well. Enjoy the podcast. You're sitting on the color couch with Vincent Taylor. I'm a colorist for film, television, and everything in between. When my clients come into the color grading suite to work on their projects, they sit on this color couch of mine for an hour or a day or weeks on end, depending on the project. Those clients might be directors, writers, producers, or cinematographers. It varies considerably depending on the project. Now, while working on the project, we talk about a whole bunch of interesting things. Sometimes it's color, but not necessarily. And that is what The Colour Couch is all about. It's a glimpse behind the curtain of film and television. The podcast will talk about colour from time to time, but it's really about what brought my clients, my guests, to The Colour Couch. How do they get to this place in this crazy industry and what keeps them coming back? I love the conversations I have, and my hope is that you'll love them too. So squeeze in, there's plenty of room, cuddle one of my Bill Murray cushions, and let's have a chat on The Colour Couch. Welcome to The Colour Couch. This is Vincent Taylor, your host. I've got my buddy Tyler Robinson here. He is a colour assist NPC, and he's painfully aware of my podcast recordings. <laughs> <laughs> but he's let me in on a little secret. Go on, tell me, tell me about the warm-up. So there's one warm-up I used to do in my choir days. Okay. But pretty much it goes like this. You, go, you say, the lips, the teeth. The tip of the tongue. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. Enunciate. Enunciate. Articulate. Articulate. Exaggerate. Exaggerate. And then you say it faster and faster. So oh, you're like, shit. the lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue, the lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. Enunciate, articulate, exaggerate. And then you just like say it faster and faster and... <laughs> So when you did it yesterday and I cracked up, I thought, oh, that's a really great way to start the podcast. But what does it actually do? It, it just warms up your vocal cords? and It warms up your vocal cords, your articulation, and it just gets you like talking very succinctly. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue, and enunciate? Enunciate, articulate, exaggerate. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue, enunciate, exaggerate. <laughs> enunciate, articulate, <laughs> exaggerate. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're going to have a chat to Tyler in a little while. I definitely want to do an episode with him and talk with him about what it is to be an assistant and his pathway to color grading and why he's interested in that. But I'm going to put Tyler on ice <laughs> and I'll come back to you. Thank you for helping me with my enunciation. No problem. Uh, and it's a, yeah, so hopefully now I'm all warmed up and you'll be ready for my next guest. So welcome to The Color Couch. Sitting on The Color Couch with me today is my very special guest, Alan Beebe. I am your host, Vincent Taylor. And if I'm really good, I'll 
edit this together and it's going to sound amazing. But Alan just asked me what the show's all about. So normally, normally, <laughs> I've only done one episode. So in the previous episode, I did a little spiel beforehand about what The Colour Couch is about. But Alan has very kindly asked me what it's about, which is a brilliant setup, right? Life of service. Yeah. I love to serve. Yeah. Do I have to pay you for that? No. Great. Payment in kind. <laughs> um, so even though it's called The Colour Couch and even though it takes place in a colour grading suite and even though I'm a colourist, the podcast is not necessarily about colour. It's about what brings people to The Colour Couch and what their connection is with this industry or with this room or, or with myself. And, um, I mean, the last podcast that I did, I don't believe we mentioned colour once. You know, we just talked about what got the guys to where they are now. So a, a little bit of backstory. So I met Alan when I was working as a colourist uh, in Shanghai. And Alan came over to do a, a car commercial. And we wore pyjamas in the colour grading suite. But we'll, we'll get back to that um, <laughs> later. First off, just to kind of introduce you, what's your background and, and, and what is your job? I, I'm a, a director, mainly commercials, music videos, shorts. Everything is very short form. It's, I'm not saying it won't be, but I kind of exist in that world where it's a poem rather than a novel. And that's something that I love. I love that, that world where everything has to be communicated within 30 seconds or within four minutes. It's always been something that fascinated me because I, I come from a a design background, fine arts background, rather than a filmmaking background. So for me, the idea that you have this very, very short window of time to communicate with people and to try and communicate ideas, stories, narratives, concepts, is much more in the world of like what I'm used to in terms of like a print design or, oh, or a still image. So that's kind of the world that I exist. I, I A lot of the work that I do is, you know, revolves around my fascinations and interests. I really believe that to do something well, you have to love it. So I do a lot of car work because I'm a huge gearhead. I do a lot of kind of fashion and tech because those those are my obsessions. And, you know, that's so that that idea that we have this kind of the sandbox to play in. And I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that you know, people will actually not only pay me to do it, but also pay the money to actually produce all of these things. That's something that I, I feel very, very lucky and grateful for. But so I, I exist in, its, in, in that sort of sphere, that sort of world where it kind of, it sits in the kind of the advertising sphere or the, the kind of the, the cross between advertising and technology and music. And, and that, that to me is just very, very fertile ground. Mm. So you mentioned a design background. So we have certainly one thing in common and that is our, our, where we were brought up so but but tell me about where you're from originally and then and then you went to design school or how, how did you get into this yeah i i grew up in new zealand like um Aotearoa, to you know first generation immigrants my mother was from south africa my dad english they met in south africa i didn't want to raise kids there because obviously you know apartheid it was it was a pretty dark period there and they moved sight unseen to New Zealand. And I was raised in a really beautiful kind of bucolic, oceanic life. And I never really knew what I wanted to do. I knew that both my parents, like although they were both like scientists and academics, they were both intensely creative humans. 
And so I never really knew what I wanted to do. I was like fascinated by, I was a big reader. I was fascinated by art. I was, but you know, like I kind of like studied physics and economics and just this really kind of scattershot sort of thing. And when it was time to go to university, my parents had a very open-minded attitude towards it where they were like, you know, we don't care what you study, but you have to study something. You have to go to university and study something. So I was like, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Like what's interesting. And (laughs) my best friend at the time was going to design school, uh, Victoria university. My alma mater had just started like a, a four-year design program that was focused more on kind of theory and the academic aspects of design rather than it being a trade, which I think is how it had been perceived before that. So I, I was like, okay, well, I'll try and get in. I had a portfolio that I'd I'd done on a trip with my parents uh, where it was just like, it was literally just drawings of, you know, various kind of artifacts from like the Vancouver Museum and some drawings from Italy and like, and somehow managed to get into art school based how, how, on that. How old, how old were you then? You I, would have been, I would have been 16. So my parents, my mother grew up in South Africa, but, you know, she had a, her parents were German. They'd like fled Germany during the war. And so she'd had a very European upbringing. And when she saw me at like age 15, like losing interest in, in art, and she was like really disturbed. She was like, you know, why? You've always been fascinated by this and now you don't want to do it anymore. You don't want to go to class. You don't want to do anything. And she, she's like, you know, show me the work that you're doing. And I showed her and I, re- I remember this very clearly. It was because New Zealand's an incredible place. It is about as far as you can get from anywhere else in the world as well. So we were studying uh, Botticelli and I was, so I'm like, yeah, we're studying Botticelli's Venus. And it's like a black and white photocopy four inches across. And I'm like, I don't know why this is interesting. She looked at it and she's like, I absolutely get it. So, you know, she put us on a plane and we went through Europe and saw all of the originals of oh these these pieces that I'd been studying but, like, had no interest in. And they're like, and I remember just going to the Louvre and, like, and just being, like, just so blown away. And I'm like, now I get it. So I had all of these drawings that I'd done over that trip, which was – you know, this kind of reconnection with like why these are such amazing pieces of art and human endeavor. And so that somehow got me into art school. And I think I was like the, out of the, the entire crop, because it was like, you know, a large, I think it was like, like 300 people going for 50 places or something. And I was like number 50 that got picked, like I just scraped in. And so I did that and then cross-credited that with all of my university courses because I also was was going for a BA in psychology. So I was cross-crediting, you know, these design courses and photography courses with with psych and statistics and Middle English literature and that sort of thing. So it was a real, just this weird scattershot education that I kind of put together myself Mm. just because I was like, okay, well, this seems interesting and that seems interesting. And weirdly enough, it's, it, rather than the typography courses or the photography courses, it's been those weird other ones, like the Middle English Literature, the the stats courses, the algebra courses, which have actually, you know, really, if I look back, helped me and kind of like steered me and given me the tools to actually tell, do this. Tell me how, and this is not a set up question because I, I totally get that about when you mentioned algebra, but how mathematics, how, how does mathematics inform you as an artist? Well, I was, as I was getting to my kind of like thesis project, like to my fourth year of, of school, 
I became really obsessed with people like John Mader, like MIT Media Labs, and his thinking. Because you know, at the time, I was I was very much into semiotics. I was very much into you know deconstructionists, that sort of thing. That at the time, in the kind of like the design world and the art world, there was this real push towards use, using literary theory as a basis for you know the creation of art and culture. So you know things like David Carson, Reagan Magazine. You know he was looking at at kind of like the deconstructionists as a, a tomato, you know, like all of those. Because again, the crossover with music, it was like album covers that got me into wanting to make art and make wanting to make music videos, yeah, that sort of thing. That's, that's and, great. And so I started getting into kind of like people like John Mader and they, their whole thing was like, look, if you're using a tool, you're, what you're going to create is always going to be based around the tool. If you're going to be using Photoshop, you're going to be creating work that the designers of Photoshop and the writers of Photoshop thought that you should be able to do. The things that are easy or the things that are possible are things that they thought that you should do. So you're really only, you're following their program. You're not following your program. So Mader was a big fan of kind of like creating your own tools. So, you know, he would, so, and how do you do that? If you're working in a, a digital medium, which I mean, everyone does to some extent these days is you create your own tools and you write your own tools. So I taught myself how to code. I was using, the software at the time was like, you know, I had to learn like JavaScript. I had to learn Java. I had to learn Macromedia Director was was one of the, the pieces of software. And all of the algebra and all of the stats was like how I could actually do things like write like a rudimentary 3D engine to kind of like actually make my own art. Mm. So I, I got very much into that. VRML, which was kind of like an early VR kind of 3D coding language to like actually kind of start to build your own worlds, which like now seems very obvious. Like, you know, we, we have like Unity and Unreal and that sort of real-time engine. But at the time it was like incredibly, you know, like forward thinking. So, you know, that's that's kind of what I got like really into and really obsessed by. And when I left uh, school, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to kind of like lock myself in a dark room and make these weird kind of code-based, algorithmic-based pieces of art and swiftly realized that even that alongside a, a dishwasher job wasn't going to be able to feed me. So I started having to look outside of that and, you know, re-entering the kind of like commercial business world. But, you know, that was, you know, what that, all of those other kind of like weird classes and kind of like viewpoints and various teachers and mentors like gave me was the ability to kind of realize that I didn't have to follow this strict path. And like, it wasn't about kind of, okay, you come out of here and you're going to, you're going to become a photographer because you did the photography stream. You're going to become a graphic designer. You're going to go and work in an ad agency. I was like, I don't know. I mean, seems like there's a lot of other really interesting things that I could actually kind of all feed into making my own work. It's interesting. I, the, the last week or so, for, I haven't been back to New Zealand for, for so many years, but I started to go down a bit of a memory lane. And, and when it, whenever I think about, I grew up in Auckland, and whenever I think about New Zealand, I, I go straight to my memories of going through that beautiful uh, museum and, and the gallery there and, and paintings that I, I don't know, that I was just drawn to. And they're so, they're so clear in my brain. For you, I mean, it, it sounds like your mum and, and, and your dad, they really supported you and encouraged you. But do you have those things that you just, when you think back to growing up there, that that are very clear? Oh, touch touch stones. Oh yeah, you mean specifically in the kind of like in terms of like art and inspiration and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, both of my parents, again, they were like, you know, like hardcore academics, scientists. My mother, you know, trained as a low temperature physicist. She was working as like at the kind of birthplace of digital computing when they were trying to get room temperature superconductors to increase the the speed of the... My, my father was a nuclear physicist, but they were both... If, if they'd have grown up in different times or different opportunities, you know, they're both they're both incredible artists, like in their, their kind of like later life, like they both paint, they both have, you know, like just incredible eye and that's become their focus later on. My father moved from, you know, hardcore science to science management to science politics to ending up the, the vice chancellor of the university that I went to after I was there and the head of the design school, which I found fascinating because I was like, you know, rather than it being something where it's, I think generally you kind of like follow your parents' footsteps. Yeah, I'm like, you're following mine. <laughs> but I, I mean, they were always, you know, like art and music was a huge part of my childhood. And, you know, we were very lucky. Like Wellington is a tiny little city. It's the capital, but I mean, Auckland is really the capital. It's like one and a half million people, which is still only about four city blocks in New York. But Wellington has always been just such an incredible cultural center, like both from music, to art, to, you know, everything from, from plays to just, just culture in general. And especially at the time, it was incredibly fertile, like tiny, like 400,000 people. And, but the, the, the museums were always great. The, uh, you know, the, the galleries were always amazing. I remember my parents taking me to see, I think it was a like Corbusier like exhibition. And I didn't believe that the buildings were real. Like I thought it was all kind of concept art. I'm like, are those real buildings? It's like, yeah, they are. And that blowing me away. I remember the the classic, you know, going and seeing like a, you know, abstract impressionist exhibition. And I'm like, I don't think that's art. I could do that. And it's like my mum just being like, well, you didn't, you know? Yeah. You think of something and and do that. Then yeah, it might only be like four lines but they're the right four lines and they're four lines that evokes emotion and evokes thought. It's, it's, a, it's such a, I mean, gosh, the, the number of times, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it that, and not as a young man, but even as a, as an older guy going to a gallery, seeing something going, yeah, you know, that's so simple, mm. but I didn't do it. Well, I mean, that's, I didn't make I mean, it. that's the interesting thing. Again, when you kind of like, as you, as you get older and you kind of like, you get a chance to interrogate your process and, you know, you realize, like, I've always been, again, my, my process has always been kind of rooted in that kind of design mentality, where which is very empirical, where it's, you know, it's like the empirical method is like, you know, yes, there might be intuitive jumps, but it's like a bulldozer. Like, it might get there, in, it's going to get there in the end. You try this, it doesn't work. You try this, it doesn't work. Try this, it doesn't work. You know, do you, and it's all of those realizing what doesn't work that gets you to the thing that does. So, you know, what you might end up doing might only take you 30 minutes, but it might have taken you three months to find out that right 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And as I've got older, I've learned to respect that in my process, that it doesn't matter that the end result was only 30 minutes of work. Like it took you 400 hours to find what that 30 minutes was. And that was, and that's essential. So just to kind of allow yourself to, to make those mistakes, to kind of, to figure out what it doesn't need to be. And also like realizing what that process is in terms of collaboration, because I mean, that's, again, it's, if I go back to when I left university and I didn't, you know, my, what I saw as my process was a very solitary one. And then realizing 
what I love about what I do now is that it's intensely collaborative and intensely social. And it's all of these amazing people with their amazing different abilities and experiences that are kind of, we're all going to go together and move together and end up with a result that's bigger than each one of us. But realizing what other people's process is as well and how mine can tie into theirs. Like even when trying to, you know, you're, if you're asking someone to take it too far, so you know that it's too far and then dial it back, which I always thought was kind of a failing. Or when someone is asking you to do that, like, can you do that? And you're like, well, it's going to be too much. Mm. Like, I think we're, this is good. But realizing that we have to try just to know that that is too far and come back. I, I mean, I, I do that even in, a, in simple terms in, in, in color grading. I was doing some teaching uh, a couple of weeks ago for some kids and, and showing them with color. And, and, and I was saying, okay, let's, let's put some more green in that. And, and I'd see them all just edging it in. I said, no, 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 no. Put heaps in. Yeah. Put heaps in yeah. and then come back. Yeah. You know, let's go, go too far yeah, and then come find, back. Let's find our limits. Yeah. Like that. I mean, we always joke about the whole split the difference thing, yeah. which is like the, the, you know, the most basic cliche kind of comment that you get from a director or an agency creative or whatever. Like, oh, you know, okay, it's this. Now it says, can we just go right to the middle? And it's just like, you know, it's like, why are you saying that? It's the most <laughs> basic thing. But there's a truth in that in terms of like, okay, I asked you to push it here just so I know that it's too far. Like that's where we don't want to go. Okay, let's, let's dial it back again. I, lo- I love, I, I, get, I get clients who, who are conscious that that phrase is very, very common. And so I get all these very creative ways of them saying it without saying without it. Without saying it, it's absolutely. Great. It's like you need to put up like a like, like color sweet bingo on the wall yeah, with all yeah, of those yeah. kind of sort of things. Like just have fun with it. Just have fun. Split the difference, you know, crush the blacks. All right, so, so, so you, you've gone from design school. You've gone into a uh, place of, of directing. Now, now, was that still in New Zealand or did you – no, I mean, it's it's one of those weird things. That I was talking about this at, at Semi-Permanent Design Conference a few years back, where if you look back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you look back and, and it seems like everything made total sense, at, you know, in terms of like your progression that got you where it feels like a straight shot. And, you know, but like it absolutely wasn't. Like I made what were quite conclusively the wrong decision at every point like at, at every point like I made the decision to do something that I found personally interesting rather than something that was a good career move whether that was financially or in terms of establishing myself or anything like that so I I made this kind of serpentine kind of path through all of these different fields I mean I've, I've worked in you know, I've worked as as a as a graphic designer as a as a web designer, as a as a writer, as a scriptwriter, as an agency creative, as as a photographer, as a music video director, as a commercial director, and it was in finding that kind of that sort of path. Like each one of these things have doing each one of these things has informed me and added to what I do now in various ways. But at the time, it was like. You know, I would see other friends of mine who knew exactly what they wanted to do and were just like laser focused on getting to that point. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, like, I'm doing this. This is feeding certain parts of my mind. And do, you, do you think, you know, talking about 2020 vision or looking back, do you think that those friends were laser focused or were they doing a similar thing where they were? Well, I mean, some of them, some of them, yes, they knew exactly what they wanted to do. And I've always like really respected that. That's not me. But it's like, you know, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and they were going for it. And a lot of them have been incredibly successful. That's that's what they've put the time into. That's what they've put their 100,000 hours into. 
and and others have kind of achieved that goal and then realized that they didn't actually want that goal as well because it was something a decision that they made when they were quite young but i mean i've also like my my peer group especially you know i'm talking about new zealand and about wellington about how fertile it was like i don't know whether there was something in the water but if i look at my my year and at at school and that sort of thing and like you know the, the people that have come out of that it's an incredible crop of people i mean like you have like Taika, who just won an Oscar for Jojo Rabbit. You have Brett and Germain, who've done incredibly well as Flight of the Concords. You've got uh, Toby Baraud, who created Love and Hip Hop, like the you know, one of the biggest franchises in American television. You have like Carlo Van der Rohe, who's like you know developed this you know his own proprietary technology and lighting systems. It's like it's an amazing group and year and couple of years of people but a lot of those guys like like some of them knew exactly what they wanted to do and some of them kind of like thought that they really wanted this and then realized that in fact they wanted this and it's, mm. but you know everyone everyone has their own route and their own their own kind of way to get to where where they're happy and you know some people need more experimentation i mean for me it was definitely you know i like these aspects of doing that but i don't like the very kind of solitary aspect there's not there's not that kind of mystery and synergy that comes from working with other people. I like doing this, but I want more control. You know, it's it's very, it's very much a kind of a, you know, a path of kind of a journey of exploration. But again, you look back and you're like, oh, everything makes sense. But at the time, it was, it's at the time, it's very much like I don't know. Well, I'm going to try this because it fascinates me. So as far as that 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 route that you took, so here you are now in New York City. So how long have you been here? I've lived here almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. 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 So this is home? This is home. I mean, it's like half my life. I've like, this is where I'm raising my son. This is, it's not somewhere that I ever, I'd been to New York before and before I moved here for good. I moved here in 99 and I'd been here before and it just didn't click with me. And, you know, I moved here with a girlfriend and she, you know, I'd, come out of a long distance relationship. I didn't want another one. I had moved back from Europe to New Zealand and she moved to New York because, you know, she got a scholarship to Columbia. And I was like, fine, I'll move here. It's difficult. I got to get a visa. I don't want to live in New York. And, you know, that relationship didn't last very long. But by that point, I'd, I'd fallen in love with the city. I'd fallen in love with New York. And the city's gone through so many changes. But this, it still has a magic that I still love. I still, I still fall in love with the city every day. But the opportunities that it gives you is incredible because it's because it is difficult to live here. It's like it's it smells in the summer and it's cold in the winter and it's incredibly expensive and you know it'll crush your dreams on the regular. But everyone who lives here wants to live here. It's difficult to live here, so you're surrounded by people who are driven and exceptional and interested in life and focused on that. And that is just priceless. I mean, that's what that's what I love. I love the people I know. I love the people that. I randomly meet. It's like you can randomly meet someone in a restaurant or a bar and they're fascinating. Mm. And that's something I don't think you get in many other places in the world. What have you been working on recently? Um, I just, I've just come out of a, like a six month burn of commercials and campaigns, which has been amazing and very intense. So I went from doing a concept film for Lexus to campaigned for for shit and you campaign for Chevy to working for Goodyear tires to working with Paula Abdul to like just just back to back and so now you know with all of that which like again is work that I'm very proud of but is very much in the kind of commercial filmmaking sphere 
I'm, you know, now taking a minute to kind of get my feet on the ground again. Like I haven't been in New York for six months. So connect with my life here again, but also, you know, just do some projects that are more just passion based. I'm doing a, a music video for a young rapper next week, which I just really like his music. It's yeah. just like, he's, you know, this really interesting young kid from Hell's Kitchen and the music's great. You know, he's like, he's an amazing poet. And, you know, just doing something with that, just being able to say, okay, you know, like we can take all of our skills and experience and contacts and do something which is going to be really amazing and interesting with very little money. So that, I've got a couple of other projects on the boil which have, you know, a more cause-based, which I think is, is also really important, like balancing the commercial work with something that you feel is important, whether in this case, sustainability and the environment and thinking about how we can use our skill sets and our contacts, et cetera, to like actually do something to raise awareness for things that are incredibly important. Hmm. When, you, when you come into a project, and I would imagine that this would vary wildly, but maybe it doesn't, where do you start? It really depends. You're right. It, it, it varies very, very differently. I mean, because I get brought into projects at very, very different points. Like Again, like my my experience is really wide ranging. Like I've worked as an agency creative, I've worked as a writer, I've worked as a, as a concept artist, I've worked as a graphic designer, I've worked as a director. So when I'm brought in, it really, it can really vary that what the ask is. Like it might be something where it's a very, you know, traditional, you know, like, okay, we've, here, this, we've worked on the script, we've sold it through, here's the agency boards we want you to you know bring your vision and your twist to it but just go and shoot this and it's like okay like i can slot in at that point or it could be something where it's like we don't really have a concept we have a problem can you help us solve this problem and the end result might be something it might be a film it might be a suggestion as to like how they change their 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 business model it could be anything and i find those very very interesting as well i've been doing a lot of client direct work over the last couple of years and that idea of just being able to embed within a problem and then figure out what the solution is so you know there's no script there's no tagline there's no boards it's it's starting at that point where it's you know it's open like we don't even know this might be a campaign this might be print this might be oh we actually need to just hire a couple of people to do this sort of thing and that's that's one thing that i find very fascinating so but those are the extremes. Like one, it might be just something where like, you know, we want you to cast some people and, and find locations and shoot this. And it's very not straightforward because the reason why this work is interesting is that it's never straightforward, mm -hmm. but it's, there's a very obvious process, or it could be something where you're starting right at the start and everything is open. Would you say as a director that you have a specific strength, like, you know, performance or design, or, or is it an, like an amalgamation of all of those things? I really think, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's because that's something that, you know, we talk about a lot. I talk about with my friends and colleagues a lot, like, you know, because, you know, everyone wants to pigeonhole. And this is something that's always been very, very difficult for me because, you know, like even like 10 years ago, with my body of work, I would take it to friends of mine, EPs of production companies. And they're like, look, you know, your stuff's great, but like you have this kind of sort of doco work. And then you have this, like this heavy design based stuff and this animation work and then cars. And then this kind of weird high fashion art stuff. And like, we don't see the 
the connective tissue there. Like, and I'm like, I don't know, it makes sense to me. <laughs> and it's taken, it took years to kind of like, kind of build that connective tissue. So now when I show my body of work, my reel, they're like, okay, like I get who you are. But it's, it's difficult if you don't, like if you're someone who's just like, I shoot cars or I'm a comedy guy or, you know, like a visual comedy or like, or whatever, then it's very easy for people to kind of say, okay, you're the guy who does this and we've got a board that needs your set of skills. Mm. It's only been very recently that I, that the feedback that I get is something where people get it. Like there was something which I found really interesting and, and, you know, almost a, a justification about a year ago where a, creative director that I'd worked for years and years before uh, came with a campaign and they're like, look, we want Alan to help us solve this because he's good at solving things. We don't know what this has to be. We've got an initial idea. We've got our ask from our client, but we, we don't know what that thread is to solve this and bring this all together. And Alan's very good at that. So that's, and that was something I was like, yeah, that is what I'm good at. That That is where, I mean, I can go and shoot stuff. There's people who are better visual stylists than me. I mean, you know, I know tons of them personally. There's people who are better actors, directors, you, you know, who come from actors and really understand performance much better than me. There's, you know, there's people who, you know, like, I mean, my whole thing is like, I'm not particularly funny, you know, like I'm not a comedy director. It's... You know, which, is, like, which is for me totally bizarre because you're hilarious. But I'm not funny but on you film. <laughs> but you're such a you, your, your humor is so for me in my experience is just so quick and so so it does surprise me it, that you it, say that. It really doesn't translate to film. I'm huh. I'm very unfunny. So <laughs> and, and I've heard this from many people, but it's you know so so hearing that and I was like yeah that is what I'm good at like I'm good at and that's why you know my work has this like big disparity because you know the through thread of all of these things is like, you know, figuring out that kind of like that thread that like, this is what's important. And whether that's a, you know, like a kinetic type piece or whether that's just a really honest piece of like documentary human filmmaking, like that's the kind of the thread that goes through it. It's like kind of like finding into this, like this line of truth and then focusing everything around that. So is there something that you haven't, haven't done in your career that you go, I'd really like to do, like really like to do comedy or I'd really like to do. Is there something like that? Or are you, are you kind of content for those things to come up organically? Mm, I mean, I mean, there's, there's absolutely things that I really want to do. There's that the work that I'm doing right now is a stepping stone towards. I see. And in the same way that I was saying that I love the kind of like the short film, sh- you know, short form koan poem sort of idea there are just stories that you can't tell in that format. And those are the stories that I grew up in and, and grew up surrounded by and love. Like the, I'm an obsessive reader and, you know, the kind of like being able to build something that you can only tell even beyond, you know, feature film length, like more kind of, I mean, I, if I look at like the episodic format or like an anthology format, like that's the stories that I want to tell fit very well into that. Like if I, you know, if you look at something like a, like a Twilight Zone or a Black Mirror or that sort of thing, where they can be different stories, they can be different worlds, they can be different world building, but there's an overarching message mm. that all of these different things fit in. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's my next step is, is moving into kind of like take everything that I already do and then be able to kind of like the stories that I love and the stories that I'm obsessed by and the stories that I write, how do I then 
take this these techniques and this experience and then use that to tell those stories. So are you saying that that would be something episodic then? Potentially, I mean, I'm or? fascinated by the format because like, and I and I figured this out. I mean, it's it's funny. Like looking back, the first time that I really realized that, like sitting there looking at narrative arcs, it was 24, which has not dated well. Like, but when 24 came out and that idea that you know, there were 24 hour long episodes and it was in real time or close to it. But how do you, you can't use just like a traditional three act structure over a 24 hour period. And I watched it like literally, I remember it was like in Paris watching it on DVDs and just sitting up, like we would sit up for 10 hours and not go to sleep, like jet lagged and just like watch 10 hours in a row of this. And it's like, okay, so there's, there's the big kind of three act structure, like traditional like Joseph Campbell sort of thing. But then within those, and that's what, each one of those is eight hours. And within that, there's three acts. Mm. And each one of those is like three hours. And within that, there's three acts. And it's kind of like fractal sort of thing and, and storytelling to the point where like each hour has like three acts and kind of like, you know, it's got a turning point and it's got like an intention, an obstacle. And then that then fits into the larger one. And, and I became, you know, like realizing at the time, because that was before binge watching was really a thing because also those shows were like once a week and seeing how that's like transferred to like the Netflixes and the Hulus where they will release a whole season, like 10 hours in one go and people will sit and watch it. So the idea that you can get, I mean, there's negatives, of course. I mean, like I love the experience of going to movies. I love the fact that I turn my phone off and I'm committed a hundred percent to watching this piece of art for an hour, two hours, two and a half hours three hours if you want to talk about the Irishman but like and you don't get that when someone's sitting there watching Netflix on their laptop in bed but what you do get is there they will sit and commit to you for 10 hours like what's this the kind of story you can tell in 10 hours is different from the story that you can tell in an hour and deeper and richer and you mm. can really investigate who characters are and what they're how they feel about certain things and it can change you can have evolution through this mm. period so I, I find that fascinating. And like, you know, I look at, at you know, shows like Chernobyl and the oh world gosh. building that yeah. goes into that. It's incredible. And I just, I just find that so phenomenal. I mean, I look at that and I'm just like, just what an absolutely fantastic piece of work. I was thinking as you were saying that, that um, that thing about going to the cinema, turning off your phone, being lost in that world is a huge part of it. And then the other part is experiencing a film with other people in the cinema. Yeah, know, that and, shared and, experience. And shared experience. But then... But then I thought about that from an episodic point of view. You know, you pick something like, you know, Breaking Bad or one of these big things that becomes this phenomena and it becomes this shared experience, you know, this water cooler talk or it becomes this, you know, oh, my gosh, yeah. did you see the latest? So it becomes a different shared experience, isn't it? Not, yeah. Not, yeah. not happening in an hour and a half but, but happening over weeks and weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's like, because I, I think that idea, I mean, that's something that drives us as humans is to like, you know, like, like how do we connect? You know, like, I mean, I look at like, you know, like, why do people drink? Why do people do drugs? It's like kind of like, you know, I've never been chasing my demons away for that sort of thing. It's like to, you know, I feel like a lot of the time, like those, those, it's not the fact of getting out of your head. It's getting into the same mind state as other people. So we're doing the same drugs together. We're all drinking together to find some commonality. And that if I look at art, you know, like it's the, you know, we're, we're sitting and like watching this movie together and we've all committed this and we we have 
the most similar, we're sitting in the same room and it's dark and we're all experiencing that sort of thing. We're all experiencing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I find that very special. But the, the other thing that I find fascinating, which again kind of like loops back to what I was doing when I left school was, you know, I'm fascinated by this idea of like of, you know, a created experience which moves beyond screens. And the I would always joke about the fact when I started moving into doing more car stuff, which like I love because like I mean, I love automotive filmmaking. Like I am a like unashamed, no irony, Fast and the Furious fan. Like I will sit there and watch any single one of those movies just quite happily. I'll watch Bullet, I'll watch like uh City Rendezvous, like and just for the the car choreography and that sort of thing. It's but I would always joke that like I don't get the sheet metal spots. I mean, the irony is that now I do get just the sheet metal spots and people don't know that I come from a design background and don't know that I come from like this sort of background, but I would get the weird experiential jobs. So like I did work for, for Castrol and Lexus where it's like these big stunts. And there's an aspect of that, that, that I love that goes beyond kind of just traditional filmmaking. Like when we, when we go, we do a shoot, it's never going to turn out exactly how you expected, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But there's always this process. It's not in real time. Like then you go and you edit it. You might tell a different story in the edit. Sometimes you have to. We didn't quite get what we wanted, but we can tell it in a different way. You have visual effects, you have post-production, you have color, you have sound design, all to kind of craft this. And what I loved about the work that was more these weird experiential things, it was almost a live event it was almost a stunt there were people there that had it had to work in the moment and this idea that there's total skin in the game that if it doesn't work right now there's no saving it there's no cutaway there's no like you know like oh let's take it do another take it has to work that i find really fascinating and you know was exciting it's super exciting and super like and terrifying but (laughs) in the best way like you're present you're in the moment and it has to work. And, you know, when I look at, you know, like even things like Sleep No More, I think were the precursor of a lot of this sort of stuff. But then when I look at, you know, this idea of like friends of mine just did this whole, the marketing for the Irishman. I don't know if you saw it went down in Little Italy. I, I was told about it, yeah. Yeah, and they they took over like two blocks of, of Mott Street, like where, you know, like Umbuda's Clam House, where like, I mean, that's, that's Hoffa, you know? So, and they, they took it over and for two days, they turned it into Hoffa era Little Italy. Like they got all of these actors and they were all in period costumes and they changed all the signage and they, all of the cars. And newspapers. And newspapers yeah, were yeah. handing out. And it was literally like going back in time, but also the way that they set it up. So when you just went there, there'd be all of these actors interacting with each other, but also interacting with you. And you would go through and your experience of that was this kind of like this fascinating and, you know, like, yeah, they filmed it and it like the films and the collateral and the, all of that sort of thing, like all, you know, that's all incredible and that all becomes its own thing, the campaign surrounding it. But like something like that, I find super fascinating, like almost like a, you know, a new form where it's, you know, it's not a play, it's not a movie, but it is all of the techniques that you're, you know, that you're setting up, the production design, the kind of the, the actors, their intentions, all of that sort of thing. And then setting someone loose in there that I, again, I find very, very fascinating right now. So you mean, you mentioned that you're an avid reader. So if, if there is a book that you would recommend to somebody at the moment, I mean, what's a book that comes to mind that you love? I mean, I love, I love world building. I love, I love writers who are in love with words. Like I love reading books where like, you're literally just like dragged with them by their, 
you know, their, their literary prowess, you know, like I've always been, you know, like obsessed with like writers like, like Thomas Pynchon or David Foster Wallace, where it's like, you know, Gravity's Rainbow, I think I probably read like 10 times. And like the first time I read it, I had no idea what it was about. Like I literally, I just, I literally felt like I'd got off a roller coaster at the end of it. Just like, I don't know what that was, but I want to do it again. And the second time I read it, I sort of understood what happened. And the third time I read it, I sort of understood the themes behind it. There's a writer, Nick Harkaway, that I really love right now, who um, there's a book, Nomon, that I've, again, I've read it like maybe three times now. It's, it's a big chunk of thick book. And he, you know, like the first time I read it, I was like, I don't know what that was, but like, I liked it. And, and taking, you know, like that, that's, a, you know, books that have that kind of density and that rereadability and that, you know, they'll, what they can give you changes depending on when in your life you are, I find fascinating. So yeah, no one's fascinating, a fascinating book because like it's, it's got these kind of like these, you know, these three or four intertwined braids that go through it. But when you start up here, like they're completely disparate and then you start to see thematic kind of echoes between them. And then they're just weaved together as it finishes in just such a virtuoso fashion, but in a way that makes you realize that you have to start reading that again immediately to then really understand what each one of these was about. Is it, is it all an older book? It's, it's recent. It's his latest one. His, I think all of his books are fantastic. I read a book recently. I, I loved, this is how you lose the time war. And it's, you know, set in a world where time travel is possible. And there's two mutually antagonistic societies in the, in the deep future who are trying to change the past to make their future happen. So, you know, like doing various things and like the, at the fall of Troy or, you know, like a, in, you know, first world war or whatever, like finding these touch points in history to change things so that their future is the one that happens. So you have one, which is like garden, but in the agency and that sort of thing. But the, the whole story is told by these soldiers who are like sent back, these two soldiers who are sent back in time to do these specific acts that will change the future. And that it, the whole story is just told from letters from one to the other, and they fall in love. Hmm. So it's love letters sent backwards and forwards by these kind of like these avatars of these mutually antagonistic, very different societies, and just like seeing them slowly kind of like learn each other and fall in love. And it's just a, a very beautiful story, and like and complex and emotional, and 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 also very very human. Hmm. I think that through everything that you've told me today i mean this comes as no surprise to me from your background to the way that you you know you've been talking about bouncing off things to find the path that you're on the one common thread which speaks to me so clearly is that you're a storyteller like you love storytelling you love reading stories you like being connected with that now in fairness to the people who are listening i touched on exciting adventure of pajamas in the color suite so Maybe we can finish with that anecdote. <laughs> I think that's a great place to finish. Uh, yeah, so so we met in Shanghai, uh, colouring a, a Volkswagen spot. And I think at the time, I think the time that I'd been to Shanghai before, I had been fascinated by all of the old Chinese gentlemen wearing pyjamas on the street. And, you know, Shanghai is one of those cities that changed drastically every time that I've been there like so rapidly. The first time I went there, like I had two pieces of paper and one had the name of the hotel that I was staying at written in 
Mandarin and the other one had the name of the production company and all I could do was like give one of these pieces of paper to a taxi driver no, no one spoke English there was no Google Maps at the time no Google Translate and I could go backwards and forwards the production and anytime I left and went somewhere like I was just so lost it was terrifying and and one of the things was seeing these old Chinese guys walking down the street in their pajamas and I was like why are they doing that and a friend of mine who lived there was like it's a symbol of wealth like they're showing off they're like I'm so well off I've got clothes just to sleep in you know like like <laughs> you see like like I'm like the, I'm I'm made it like you got you got clothes I got separate clothes I just sleep in like you see this it's like and I found that hysterical and just that that it was this way of just completely flossing and flexing and so when you and I met we were we were doing color and we were like we need we need some of these old man pajamas to flex and so we got uh, got Lily to <laughs> Go and buy his pajamas and the little um, flip flops, the, the little oh, slippers, right. the, little slip, the matching well. slip slippers, and got dressed and did it all of our color like that. Not realizing that, well, we we thought it was funny, but like everyone at the at the post house thought that we were completely mental. They because did, didn't they? They thought we were completely crazy. Like, what is wrong with these guys? And we we're like, yeah. look, look, look but, at this. But, but I remember people kept like, oh, man, they were taking photos of us. People was like, just popping and take photos. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're like, look, we're we're acclimatized. We're, we're like, we're, that's it. We're we're, we're locals now. Uh, and just just in case anyone is wondering, yes, we are sitting here whilst we're recording in our pajamas. Magic will, slippers. Uh, magic slippers. I, I will try to dig up. I've got a photo somewhere of uh, that session of us in our pajamas. I'll try and put that in the show notes. You have to. Um, and I will also link you to Alan's work. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to and chat to me. And as we were talking, I went, man, this could be a two-parter. No, but I mean that in, in, a, in, a, in a lovely way because there's so much more that I want to ask you and talk to you about. So who knows, maybe for season two of season The Colour Couch, I'll get you back again. We'll come back. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Alan Beebe for being my guest on The Colour Couch. He's looking very good in his pajamas. Uh, thank you to my executive producer, Amelia Chapelo. The lovely music is from Chubby Tycoon. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate everyone for listening uh, and for your super lovely feedback. Thank you. Keep colouring outside the lines and I'll chat with you all again soon.